Psalm 45, please. You can take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 45 this morning. Before we get into the psalm this morning, I'd like to pray and just ask the Lord's help and blessing as we study His Word. And so let's pray together, and then we will look at Psalm 45 together. Dear Lord, we are again coming to you on a beautiful Sunday morning gathered together in this place. We're thankful as we sing these songs that exalt your greatness. You are the King. You are King over all of the universe. The Scriptures remind us of that over and over again, that our Lord is King. And yet... Well, you've also promised to come to earth and to sit on the throne of David and to rule and reign. And we look forward to that day. We pray that you would come quickly. Lord, we think about the church that you have called out of this world to be your bride. Scripture presents this to us. And we look forward long for the day when the Son will come to claim His bride. We pray that it would be today. Help us, Lord, as we study Your Word in Psalm 45. Give us insight and understanding to know the truth. And I pray, Lord, give us humility to accept the truth, to believe it, and to live according to the truth. Help me as I speak that I would say what honors you and what uh, exalts your word and not myself, that you would get, receive all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week we began studying Psalm 45, this song of love, which was written on the occasion of some royal wedding in Israel. Most commentators presume this was a wedding of Solomon. But we don't know for sure, and there's nothing here to tell us that. It becomes obvious, though, as we read Psalm 45 very quickly, that this song cannot simply refer to a human king and his noble bride. But it has to be looking beyond mere men and ultimately to the God-man who is Jesus Christ. He is uniquely blessed with God's grace. He can, uh, he can take divine glory and majesty upon himself as if it were a robe to be worn around his shoulders. He makes war with his enemies and he utterly defeats them all because he is himself God and his throne is forever and ever. But he's also the son who is anointed by the father. And so we have here in Psalm 45 a presentation of the triune nature of the Godhead. We sang in the last hymn about God who is three in one. And that truth is presented in Psalm 45 in some fashion. At least the Father and the Son are revealed here. And as He prepares for His wedding... 
Messiah here is arrayed in glory and in splendor so that all eyes are on him. And all who see him are moved to worship him and sing his praises. That is where we left the song last week at the end of verse 9. This morning, I'd like to continue on in the psalm as the psalmist turns to Messiah's bride and speaks directly to her. Now this portion of the psalm from verse 10 to verse 17 could uh, be divided into three strophes. The first is wise counsel for the bride in verses 10 through 12. The second is praise for the favored bride in verses 13 through 15. And then we have a wedding benediction in verses 16 and 17. Now, obviously, as we've already said, this psalm is focused primarily on Messiah and on His bride, although her identity is not revealed here. Now, in the New Testament, we find out that the church is the bride of Christ. But I want to be very careful that we don't simply read back into this Old Testament passage truth that has revealed the New Testament. And I don't want to distort the plain meaning of this text that was written by the sons of Korah. Just as an aside note, we've talked about this extensively in the last number of years, about the importance of letting Scripture speak for itself. The Old Testament matters. The Old Testament speaks with the voice of God to us, just as powerfully as the New Testament. And we must not, we dare not, take the Old Testament and act as if it means nothing and everything has to be redefined and reinterpreted through the lens of the New Testament. And that is a popular move to make today, but it is one that I reject and I think we all should reject. We need to understand what they're saying and what Psalm 45 is saying on its own. And so I don't want to just jump to the New Testament and use Psalm 45 as a springboard to go talk about what all the things the New Testament reveals about the Messiah and His bride. Instead, I want to look at Psalm 45 and let it speak. And I want to hear what it says. And so I do want to... Uh, I, we will make some of those some of those ties to the spiritual truths that we see, the spiritual applications that are there for all those who are born-again Christians. But I think that there's also some principles here that speak to the issue of marriage because there are some principles as we see, especially in the, the, the portion I call the wise counsel for the bride, we see some principles of marriage that are important as well. And so I want to try and draw both of those things out at the same time, best as we can. And I'm sure that as we do that, we will not exhaust everything that could be said about this psalm. But as I said before, and you know me well, you know that I want, above all, to be faithful to the text of Scripture. It's God's Word, not mine. And so I want to look at the second half of Psalm 45 in that light. So let's look at Verses 10 through 12, the psalmist says this, Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. 
So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The first piece of advice, I said that this is the counsel for the bride. The first piece of advice that the psalmist gives to the bride is very uh, important. It's essentially this, forget your past. Forget your past. Specifically, your own people and your father's house. Now, Gerald Wilson talks about the importance of remembering and forgetting in the Old Testament in his commentary on the Psalms. And he says this, that a call to remember is at the same time a call to action. In other words, when the Bible talks about remembering the Lord, it means to make the Lord the foundation of your life. By the same token, to forget the Lord is to become unfaithful to Him. And that's why forgetfulness is often condemned by the Old Testament prophets. They condemn Israel and say, Israel, you have forgotten your God. Well, did they actually not remember Him? No. But they were no longer acting in in a way that was consistent with their knowledge of God. Wilson says this, does not usually represent simple passive loss of memory. He's speaking of forgetting here. Rather, it describes a willful resistance or rejection of memory and a consequent failure to act appropriately. This is what we're talking about, of course, when we're talking about forgetting the Lord. To forget the Lord means to willfully resist and reject the memory of who God is and what He has done. And then to choose to act other than if God had done what He had done. So you think about Israel. God had redeemed Israel from Egypt. He went down, right, sent Moses down, did the, the ten plagues, and He brought the people out of Egypt with great power, right? He crosses the Red Sea, causing the sea to part, and they walk across on dry ground, and He destroys the armies of Pharaoh in the water. He brings manna from heaven and quail, and he provides fresh water and all of the things they need in the wilderness for 40 years. All of these things God has done. And so if you lived through that time, it would be impossible for you to forget, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure had you walked across the Red Sea on dry ground, looking on either side and seeing the waters piled up as if they were in a wall next to you, you would not forget. The rest of your life, the picture of what you saw and experienced that night would be in your mind. However, if you forget it and you choose not to act as if God can do those great things, if you forget that God has redeemed you from Egypt and brought you out by His mighty arm, if you don't If you just ignore it and you act as if it's irrelevant to you, that's what he's talking about. So when the scripture talks about forgetting God, it's talking about ignoring all of the things that he's done. And obviously in that sense, it's a negative thing. To forget God is condemned. But I think the same principle is actually in view here. 
Because the bride is to forget her people and forget her father's house. And that is not a bad thing, like in the case of forgetting God. It's a good thing. What do I mean by that? Well, because her people and her father's house are not supposed to have any claim on her anymore. In fact, it would be a disaster for her to enter into marriage while still acting as if her father's house were her own. You see where that would be a problem? If she goes into this marriage with the king and she does not forget her father's house. She goes into this marriage and she still thinks of her father's house as her house, the place where she belongs. She still thinks of her people in her father's house and her family as the family. Then she is not going to embrace her husband and his house and the family that they are creating. See, in Genesis 2, 24, we find God giving the same kind of instruction to Adam. And really through Adam, he gives this instruction to all husbands, right? Genesis 2, 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, we compare that with Psalm 45 and verse 10, and what we realize is that this is the same instruction for both the husband and the wife. They are to leave their parents' house. They are to be joined to their spouse. There must not be a rivalry in a man's heart between his wife and his mother. He is to leave his father's house. He is to leave his mother. And he is to be joined to his wife. And there must not be a rivalry in a man's heart between his wife and And his mother, he's got to cut the cord. He's got to be separate from his mother for the sake of his wife. But the same thing is true on the other side. There must not be a rivalry in a woman's heart between her husband and her father. She is to forget her father's house for the sake of her husband. This is God's plan for marriage. By the way, Genesis 2.24 This is God's plan for marriage before sin came into the picture. This has always been God's plan for marriage. So it goes back to the very creation. When God created man and woman, this was his plan. That there would be no rivalry in the heart of the husband between his wife and his mother. There'd be no rivalry in the heart of a wife between her husband and her father. Because those ties to the father's house and the mother's house would be cut off so that the husband and wife could be joined and be as one. And so here we have in Psalm 45, the psalmist offering this very wise counsel to the bride. But of course, in addition to a practical piece of advice here, okay, forget your past, there's also a spiritual truth here, isn't there? A spiritual truth that, that is to be embraced as it regards our relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because we all have a past. We all have a past. And whatever our past is, whatever your past is, whether it is shameful or illustrious, it must be left behind when we come to the Savior. Your past sins, 
if you have trusted the name of Jesus, have been forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says God remembers them no more. That's, again, not God, not God losing track of something in his mind. It's God willfully rejecting the memory of your sin. You too must forget them. And you must live as if they have no more claim on you. And the scriptures actually tell us that they do not. Your past sins, the sinful flesh, the natural man with which you were born has no more claim on you if you are in Jesus Christ. But too often we return to our sin and then we wallow in guilt over a past that has been removed, over a past that is to be forgotten, willfully rejected in our minds, refusing to go back to it, refusing to indulge it. We need to forget the past. Of course, this also includes the things that we might be proud of in our past, our accomplishments or our religious act, our actions. It doesn't matter what you did before you met Christ. What matters is that you know Him and the power of His resurrection for yourself. The day you turn away from your sins and the day you turn to Him in faith is day zero. Everything starts on that day. Nothing that came before that has any hold over you, good or bad. So forget your past. But then the advice progresses, and I want you to see this. It builds on what he has already said because he tells the bride to honor her husband. Verse 11 speaks here about the relationship between the king and his bride. The king, he says, will desire, will greatly desire your beauty. He begins with that little word, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. It's connected to what he's already said. Forget your past. Forget your father's house. Forget all of that. And, and, and then what you will see is that your husband, the king, will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. Of course, he desires her beauty. This is speaking of his desire to consummate the wedding and complete the separation of the bride from her father's house. This is a good thing. It's how God designed marriage to work, right? That the husband would find his wife desirable in her beauty. And then see how she is to act toward him. She is to worship him as Lord. Now here's a countercultural command if I ever saw one. Ladies, those of you who are married, are you really supposed to worship your husband? Uh, the husbands in the room might like that, I don't know. Well, first of all, understand, uh, when he says, because he is your Lord, worship him, he's not saying because he is God. He's not putting the husband in the place of God. And suggesting that the wife is to worship her husband as she worships the Lord. That's not what he's saying. The word there is, is really comparable to our word husband. And so she is not considering him to be God. She is to consider him to be her husband. And again, we, we talked about this in Sunday school. The word worship literally means to bow down or make obeisance. But I'm pretty confident 
that here he is not saying the bride should bow down before her husband. What, she, what he is telling her to do is this, that she is to show him deferential respect. Honor him as her husband. Now in the New Testament, we have this same principle put in slightly different terms, right? Wife, you are to submit to your husband as to the Lord. And husband, you are to love your wife as your own body. Again, there's more here than just wisdom for husbands and wives in a relationship. So we have the principle here to the wife. You're to honor your husband. And of course, in the same verse, the husband who desires his wife, who loves his wife and her beauty. And there's more to it than that. Because we also need to humble ourselves before the Lord and give him honor. Of course, in that case, we could rightly say we should bow down before God. But the principle here is the principle of humbling ourselves and showing honor. And that principle is applied in both the marriage and our relationship with God, Jesus Christ. But I want you to see that that humbling and submission is not without a reward. Because verse 12 explains to us the reward. Notice what he says there. He says, And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. And this is the third piece of advice here. And it's this, to receive dignity and influence. In the context here, remember, he's speaking to the bride of an Israelite king, And so he points to the city of Tyre, specifically the people of the city of Tyre who will come and bring gifts to her. Now it's entirely possible, but I can't prove it, but it's entirely possible here that the bride, the actual human bride that's in view in this particular song, is from Tyre herself. That wouldn't be outside the bounds that a king would have married uh, a princess from Tyre, being married to forge or strengthen an alliance with this foreign power. But regardless, the point is the same. Once she's left her past behind, once she's embraced the love of her husband and honoring him as Lord, she will find herself in a position of great influence and power. A dignitary in the king's court. Now, Understand, there is much to be gained by being chosen by the king, right? There's a lot to be gained if the king chooses you. It's not just that she's getting married. She's coming into a new position, being queen in her own house rather than being a daughter in her father's house. Men and women of wealth, and of influence, will seek her out for the influence that she has with the king. Now, I think the principle here, as it applies to marriage, is important. That a wife gains respect and dignity, not by asserting herself in dominance over her husband, 
This is where this is a countercultural principle. Because the wife gains dignity and influence by submitting to her husband and showing honor to him in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because this is the role that God has given. This is the role, wife, for which you have been chosen and gifted to have great influence with your husband and so to receive gifts and honor from others who desire a hearing with him. You see the picture here is the, the, the bride becomes the queen and she in some ways becomes the gateway for all those who want to get to the king. And so what do they do? They want influence and favor from the king. What do they do? They go to her because they know that she has the ear of the king. You see, as she has a position of great influence, a position of dignity, a position of honor, by virtue of the fact that she has the ear of her husband. And anyone who's wise knows that if they want to get to him, they go through her. And so she gets gifts, and she receives very wealthy and influential people who come to her, and they want her to influence her husband on their behalf. You see, she is not some doormat. She's not just eye candy. She is intimately involved in the affairs of state, and she is a close advisor to the king. Again, I think the picture here that we're supposed to see of marriage is it's a partnership in which the wife is most honored when she fulfills the role that God has defined for her. And of course, the same thing is true for husbands. But the wife is specifically in view here in the psalm. And so this principle as it applies to marriage is that we receive the most honor and the most dignity and the most influence when we fulfill the role that God has given to us. And though our society and our culture would say that it's foolish and that it is demeaning, we need to see that God says it is honorable and it is dignifying when we embrace the roles that God has assigned. When we do marriage His way. And of course, it's not just a principle of marriage. I think there's a spiritual principle here as well. This is our hope as believers. That one day we will rule and reign with Christ as He has promised. There is great dignity and honor to all those who serve the King, but most of all for His bride, the Queen with whom he shares the most intimate and equal of partnerships. That's the picture that we have in view here. Messiah with his bride. Now I want to consider the next strophe and see what I call praise for the favored bride. Look at what he says there in verse 13. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. This is praise for the bride. We saw in the first half the groom. And all the attention on that wedding day turns to the groom. But here we see the bride on that same 
wedding day. The psalmist describes her appearance with a flourish. We see her in verse 13, within the palace. Now the, the words, the palace, there in verse 13, your Bible might have them in italics that suggest they were added by the translators into English, and that's true. They're not there in the original. They're added for clarity. Some people think that this is saying that the royal daughter is glorious within herself, saying the bride is, is you know, of great character and nobility. But I think it's best to see this in the context here as the bride inside her chamber preparing for the wedding, readying herself. Like every bride, she desires to highlight her beauty. But unlike other brides, this bride is not limited by a meager budget. This bride is to be married to the king. This is a royal wedding. And so her garments are the very best. They're woven with gold. A robe of many colors, according to verse 14. These were no doubt gifts given to her by the king himself that he has chosen to enhance her beauty, or or maybe I should say it this way, to to complement her beauty. And so the king himself, as he's preparing, as his bride is preparing for the wedding day, he has given her the finest clothing so that she will be adorned as she ought to be, considering this is a royal wedding. And she's accompanied here by a retinue of bridesmaids. We see them described in uh, verse 14. There's an entourage that's fitting for a queen. Now, these bridesmaids are no doubt also clothed in fine robes, but none of them so fine that they can compete with the queen. And so we're meant to imagine the scene, I think. The beautiful queen, dressed in gold and brilliantly colored clothing, perfectly adorned to please her husband and to set her apart from all of her attendants and all of the wedding guests, leaving her apartments, marching into the palace, into the very throne room of the Mighty One. And her bridesmaids deliver her to the king with musical fanfare as all of the guests and dignitaries look on in awe and wonder at her beauty and the majesty of the scene. Is it any wonder that the psalmist speaks of the gladness and the rejoicing that accompanies her entrance into the king's presence? This is a spectacular scene that we are invited to imagine here as we read this psalm. But even as we take in this scene, scene, we can't help but think of the glories of heaven that await all those who belong to Christ. And the great marriage supper to which we have been called as children of God. Will it look something like this? When all of God's children are met together with Christ to live with Him, to remain at His side forever. Like I said, this is a spectacular vision, but not just of a royal wedding in Israel hundreds of years ago, but of that day when Jesus Christ receives His bride. This is the hope of every child of God, isn't it? Every born-again saint 
who faces the certainty of death with confidence in the even greater certainty of this royal wedding that is coming. And so we can join with the psalmist and sing praises to the bride and all of her beautiful array. But remember that the bride is only reflecting the glory of the king himself. She is the recipient of his favor. She's dressed in all of this finery. She's surrounded by this entourage only because it is the king to whom she is to be married. Whatever glory and honor we may receive at the hand of Christ, it is all his and none of ours. And may we look forward to being ushered into the palace of the king so that with rejoicing and singing and gladness, we can enter his eternal presence. Now there's one final strophe that we need to consider. In the last two verses of the psalm, the attention turns back to the king and we have a wedding benediction Look at verse 16. He says to the king, Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you forever and ever. These last verses also contain several statements which just can't be completely explained as references to an earthly king. They cry out for application to the Messiah. But I want you to notice, first of all, the promise here that is, uh, that is accompanying this union. The promise is a promise of offspring. Verse 16, it's a promise of sons. You see, it's not his ancestry that's important. It's the sons who will carry on his name and his rule as princes. Look at how he describes them here. Your fathers shall be your sons. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. This is no mere human king who rules over a single nation. This is the Lord Jesus Christ whose reign will cover the whole world and his sons as princes will join in ruling his kingdom. This is the promise of Scripture that's referred to here in Psalm 45. Verse 17 also contains a reference to the divinity of this king, Messiah. And it's not necessarily obvious at first glance. You see, there's a promise here that I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. This is the psalmist who's saying that your influence and your power and your glory are going to be known throughout all of the world for all of time. That's why he's writing this psalm. That's why he's proclaiming this song, because he's exalting and extolling the glory of God in the Messiah. But then he says, therefore the people shall praise you. That phrase, the people shall praise you, is interesting because it's always used 
of the people's worship for God. It is never used of the people's praise for man, ever. Not one time in Scripture. If, they, if, if that's what it meant here, this would be the only place in all of Scripture that, it, that it's used that way. It's always used to refer to how the people worship God. And so here, even in this closing verse and the closing line of the psalm, we see once again the assertion that it is God who rules on high. That Messiah himself is God. See, That Jesus Christ is no mere man. He's not just an exalted person. He's not just a human being that was blessed and strengthened and gifted and raised more than anyone else. He's not an angel or some other creature. He is God himself. The great king, the mighty one, the anointed ruler over the whole world. And when he takes his place on the throne with his bride at his side, the people will sing his praises and glorify his name and their praise will continue forever and ever. That's the picture we're to get here. And so when you finish reading Psalm 45, this is what you should come away with. That the Lord is king and he will rule and reign. And his bride will be seated at his right hand in all of her glory and splendor that she has received from him. And so, as we consider how Psalm 45 applies to us today, especially verses 10 through 17, I have to ask again, is Jesus Christ your king? Does he rule over you? Have you humbled yourself before Him? Have you given up your sinful past and embraced Him and embraced His love for you so that you worship Him with all your heart? Will you receive the gift of His grace, His heavenly favor, with which He'll clothe you in righteousness? It's like the bride being adorned with her robes Will you receive His grace so that He can clothe you in His brilliant and glorious robes of righteousness? The bride, as she is ushered into the presence of her king, is spotless and clean. She's perfect in beauty. And that is the way that God would have you come before your king. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, then you're still in your sins. That means you're still wearing those filthy garments you need to have them removed and replaced by pure and spotless robes that belong to Christ. Will you trust in Him today to forgive your sins and to grant you His favor? But I think, as we said already, this psalm speaks to those of us who are married as well with respect to our marriages. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 5, that the relationship between a husband and wife, her submitting to him and him loving her sacrificially, is a picture of Christ and the church. It was a mystery. It was a mystery that the writer of Psalm 45 could not know because it hadn't been revealed to him yet. But we know it. We know that our marriages are supposed to picture Christ and the church. 
How are you doing, husbands? Do you desire your wife's beauty? The way that Christ desires the pure and spotless beauty of His bride. Your wife. Do you honor your husband? Embracing the dignity of your role as his closest confidant and advisor. These are principles that we need to understand. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 33. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Of course, Paul's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And then he says this, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray.